Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live lives with a little bit more courage to love the hell out of this world. I'm one of your hosts, Reverend Sean, and it's great to be with you. This is a special episode because, well, Christmas fell on a Sunday, and the quandary for churches, actually for centuries, has always been what to do with the celebration of Christmas and the church. I thought in this episode, I would share with you more about the history of the celebration of Christmas in the United States, and how it was deeply informed by Unitarians and Universalists. And I want to do this by reading the first part of Dr. S- Reverend Dr. Susan Ritchie's book, How the Unitarians and Universalists Invented Christmas. It's a beautiful anthology of historical Unitarian Christmas stories and charts really the evolution of our liberal religious past in how it influenced the celebration today. Susan Ritchie is a historian, a Unitarian Universalist minister, a friend of mine, and I thought we would just read kind of this excerpt from her book to kind of explore it. So here we go. Part 1, in which the Universalists deem Christmas religious. One of the very first social divisions in American society was between the Christmas keepers and their opponents. In the early days of the Plymouth Plantation, the pilgrims did all they could to discourage the celebration of Christmas, and they frowned heavily on the attempts of the strangers, their more secular fellow immigrants, to make merry on December 25th. For parts of the 17th century, it was illegal to observe Christmas in colonial America, at least in Puritan Boston. Pious New England Protestants had deep and well-earned suspicions of Christmas. They knew that there was no biblical precedent for celebrating Jesus' birth at any time of year, least at all late December. They saw Christmas as an unfortunate conflation of the pagan and papist sins of the church. A 4th century mass for the nativity of Jesus expediently piggybacked onto the date of a much more popular winter solstice. Nor were they fond of the contemporary observations of Christmas back home in rural England, where it was a folk holiday of inversion and misrule. Social rules were turned on their heads, drunken young men roamed the streets freely demanding food and drink from their wealthier homes. The religious of New England strove to do better. And yet, by the turn into the 19th century, things had changed dramatically. In 1818, the Reverend Aaron Bancroft, the openly Unitarian minister of the Congregationalist Church in Worcester, Massachusetts, was advocating Christmas as in keeping with the values of good New England Protestants. He was not so concerned about the absence of biblical precedent, so long as both the holiday and the date were agreeable and convenient to people. In a sermon given in the church on Christmas Day, said, The New Testament has not appointed anniversary services in commemoration of the birth of our Savior. If we celebrate this event, we should consider it a privilege with which we are indulged, not as duty divinely enjoined. And should any object to the time of the celebration on the plea that we have not conclusive proof respecting the day on which our Savior was born, our answer is, the objection on the point before us has no force. Christ the Savior was born into our world whether we celebrate his appearance on the precise day of his birth or on some other, to a religious purpose is a circumstance of no importance. The Christian community in general entertains the same opinion respecting the time. If the evidence, if the event be publicly noticed, it is convenient and therefore desirable. Reverend Bancroft stands out as one of the most eloquent of the church-based Christmas keepers, but he was not the earliest. That honor lay with the Universalist community of Boston, 
which hosted the first public religious observance of Christmas in the New World, outside of an Episcopal or Catholic Mass, in 1789. The Boston newspaper's friendly review of this event is reproduced below. The newspaper says, Yesterday, the birth of our Savior was celebrated at at several Episcopalian churches and the Universalist meeting house in this town. At the latter, Mr. Richards delivered an ingenious and animated sermon, particularly adapted to the occasion. The choir of singers sung several anthems with much effect. Indeed, the Universalists would prove the most energetic of all the Christmas evangelizers. Part 2. Christmas Moves Indoors So how did Christmas finally earn the approval of God-fearing churchgoers? Having realized the attempts to simply ban Christmas had been effective, those still concerned about the holiday's immodest excesses tried instead to reinvent Christmas as a religious celebration, imposing moderation by relocating it from the streets to the meeting house. Interest in the religious observances of Christmas on December 25th itself was short-lived. Even to this day, most American Protestant churches are predictably closed tight on Christmas, sometimes even when Christmas falls on a Sunday. But the groundwork for change was already laid, and the next wave of the campaign to domesticate Christmas proved successful. By the turn of the 19th century, Christmas was about family and children, all safely tucked away inside the nuclear family home. Christmas became the high holidays of the new secular religion of domesticity. The rising prosperity of the middle class and the corresponding new interest in the nurture of children and the transformation of pre-industrial family business into separate spheres of industry and business for men and home life for women were all important elements in this change. Bringing Christmas into the family home, however, came with its own set of challenges. Domestic keepers of Christmas wrestled mightily, for example, with how to exchange gifts. Previously, the home invaders of Christmas misrule simply took their gifts of the manor house's best food and drink, which often, of course, were also the products of the invaders' hard and poorly compensated work in the field or the mill. Members of the family already enjoyed the best the house had to offer could hardly offer each other gifts of their regular fare. Hence, contrary to popular belief, the very first Christmas gift were not lovingly handmade, they were explicitly commercial mass-produced goods, whose value derived precisely from the fact that they could not have been made inside the home. But even as the newly indulgent parents of the time were delighting in offering commercial holiday gifts to their children and other loved ones, they faced new dilemmas. They loved their child-centered homes, but they also wondered if lavishing attention on children might create spoiled, greedy adults. And this is where Christmas trees enter our story. Explicitly introduced by Unitarians, and abolitionist Unitarians at that, in the hopes of making even the recipients of gifts morally improving. Part 3. Abolitionist Unitarians Evangelize the Christmas Tree In 1835, the British Unitarian author Harriet Martineau published an account of her travels in the United States. In the chapter on the cold weather customs, she claimed to have been present at the first American introduction of the German Christmas tree tradition. She described a touching holiday scene in a family home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The father, a German immigrant, had placed a small tree on the table in the drawing room, and he and his wife hung each branch with small toys, candles, and candies. The man and his wife hid the tree from children until making a dramatic reveal, throwing open the doors to the dining room to delight of their five-year-old son, little Charlie, and his friends. 
Martineau ended her account by predicting that this custom will quickly become an integral part of the American Christian experience. But what Martineau excluded from her account was the identity of little Charlie's father. He was Charles Fallon, the brilliant Unitarian minister and progressive thinker. Nor did she explain that she was in Fallon's home because of their shared commitment to abolitionism, or that in the Christmas of 1835 was not a joyous one for either of them. Fallon had just lost his job teaching at Harvard, as well as a subsequent tutoring position because of his abolitionist stance. Similarly, Martin Yu's social connections, as well as her readership, were dwindling in the face of her own opposition to slavery. The friends were together to muddle through their shared misfortunes and to regather their courage, and it was best not to broadcast widely the fact that they had spent the holiday together. A child-centered Christmas and abolitionism might seem like separate concerns, but often they were not. Abolitionists and progressive education reformers saw a similarity in the conditions of children and enslaved persons as people subject to being beaten within their own homes. And for people like Fallon and Martineau, both of causes were deeply wrapped up in the Unitarian belief in the importance of all persons to be able to cultivate a moral life, free from such abuse as would restrict the fullest flowering of the most positive expressions of human nature. But why would Martin Ewan Fallen imagine a Christmas tree as a tool for improving moral development? The answer involves Samuel Taylor Coolridge, his 1799 description of the Christmas tree published in the Christian Register, the official newspaper of the American Unitarian Association. Coolridge wrote an account of his travels to Rasburg, Germany, where he implied that it was an old German folk tradition to not only put up a Christmas tree, but for children to place handmade gifts for their parents and siblings under the Christmas tree. There is a Christmas tradition, he wrote, here which pleased and interests me. The children make little presents to their parents and to each other, and the parents to the children. For three or four months before Christmas, the girls are all busy and the boys save up their pocket money to make or purchase these presents. What the present is to be is caught is cautiously kept secret, and girls have a world of contrivances to conceal it, such as working when they are out on visits, and others are not with them, getting up in the morning before daylight and the like. Then, on the evening before Christmas, one of the parlors is lit up by the children in which the parents must not go. A great yew bow is fastened on the table at a little distance from the wall. A magnitude of little tapers are fastened in the bow, but so not to catch it till they are nearly burnt out, and colored paper hangs and flutters from twigs under the boughs, and the children lay out in great order the presents they mean for their parents, still concealing in their pockets what they intend to f- for each other. Then their parents are introduced, and each present his little gift, and then brought out the rest one by one from their pockets and present them with kisses and embraces. Where I witnessed this scene, there was eight or nine children, and the eldest daughter and mother wept aloud for joy and tenderness, and tears ran down their face of their father, and he clasped all his children so tight in his breast. It seemed as if he did to stifle the sob that was rising within him. I was very much affected. The shadow of the bow and its appendages on the wall, and the arcing over the ceiling, made a pretty picture, and then the raptures of the very little ones, when at At last the twigs of their needles began to catch fire and snap. Oh, it was a delight for them. On the next day in the great parlor, the parents laid out the table, the presents for the children, a scene of more somber joy success 
As in this day, after an old custom, the mother said privately to each of her daughters and the father to his sons, that which he had, has observed most praiseworthy and which was most faulty in their conduct. Formerly, and still in all the similar small towns and villages throughout North Germany, these presents were sent by all the parents to some one fellow who, in high buskins, a white robe, a mask, and an enormous flax wig, personate Crinch Rupert, the servant Rupert. On Christmas night, he goes round to every house and says that Jesus Christ, his master, sent him thither, and parents and elder children receive him with great pomp of reverence. While the little ones are most terrified, terribly frightened, he then inquires for the children, and according to their character, which he hears from the parents, he gives them the intended presence, as if they came out of heaven from Jesus Christ. Or, if they should have been bad children, he gives the parents a rod, and in the name of his master recommends that they use it frequently. About seven or eight years old, the children are let in on the secret, and it is curious to observe how faithfully they keep it. And yet, not only was the custom of German Christmas, this is Susan writing, German Christmas trees not fully established well into the 19th century, what Coolridge observed in terms of children using the tree to give rather than to receive gifts was likely a tradition unique to that family and not a widespread practice. But the idea of using the tree to teach generosity proved irresistible for American liberals. And soon, many Unitarians and others were actively promoting the Christmas tree. When Goody Love Lady's book published an engraving showing Prince Albert sharing the tradition of the tree with his wife, Queen Victoria, and their growing family in 1850, its popularity was assured. American parents used the tree to distribute gifts to their children, often by attributing the mysterious arrival of the present to a larger benevolence, such as the Christ child and eventually Kris Kringle or Santa Claus. Thus, they solved the problem of being seen to directly spoil their children, but some uneasiness remained. This concern lives on in the Unitarian Christmas literature, where, Christ where children often receive gifts only after dramatic displays of selflessness. Apparently, one only deserves gifts only by not desiring a theme that runs rampant in the genre, from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women to O. Henry's Gift of the Magi to contemporary Hallmark movies. I love looking at history because we accumulate these traditions and we inherit them in ways that we don't know where they came from so much. And we have stories that are often not even true. And so the idea of the promulgation of the Christmas tree as a way to teach generosity, knowing that this custom was not even widespread in Germany and yet took hold in America is a really interesting way of thinking. And that is tied into the abolitionist movement and the concern for children and the end of, and, and the end of slavery. So I hope that this little walk through memory lane has been enjoyable for you. I wish all of you a wonderful holiday and look forward to connecting with you in the new year. Thanks for listening to the Deeper Podcast.